best tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the node. Science is a collaborative enterprise spinning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Hi, everybody, and welcome to July's edition of Blue PsyCon, Blue Marble Space Science Conversations. This is the podcast that features the ideas, research, philosophies of the Blue Marble Space Institute science, scientists, and friends. So um, thank you for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about our institute, you can check us out at bmsis.org. And if you'd like to listen to previous editions of our podcast, you can go to bmsis.org slash podcast. If you're one of our regular listeners, we know you're out there. We'd love to hear from you. Please send us messages at podcast at bmsif.org. We'd love to hear what your favorite beverages are or your least favorite beverages. We'll favorite, feature them, whatever. What's the worst beverage you've ever had? Email us. We want to know. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> with that, it's uh, my delight to welcome Dr. Demetra Atri to the show. Demetra has recently put forward a hypothesis about how subsurface life could be powered by cosmic rays, aside from you know, the sun and other types of radiation. We usually think of powering life. And he, he put this, uh, this paper out in, I believe it was astrobiology. I might be wrong. You can correct me on that. That's right. Okay. And uh, it looks like he got a little bit of news coverage and it stimulated some discussion. So, you know, Demetra, welcome. Tell us, tell us a little bit about your idea. Oh, thanks, Jacob, and everyone for being here. So let me just start with some basics, what are cosmic rays, uh, what kind of research is going on in connection with life. So basically, when we look at radiation, most of the radiation that we get is from photons from the sun. And it is several orders of magnitude greater than any other kind of radiation that we have on the surface. Other sources are some radiation from terrestrial sources, radioactive materials, they decay. They give out radiation. Another source is these galactic cosmic rays. And these are subatomic particles, mostly protons, uh, nucleus of helium, and other heavy elements. And they are distributed all across the galaxy. So most of these solar particles are produced in the sun. We know the mechanisms. We can measure the energy, the flux, and so on. Uh, if you go much higher in energy, then you have supernovae, which are just exploding stars, heavy stars. When they explode, uh, they transfer a lot of energy uh, into the medium. There, there are processes through which, which these particles, these protons, get accelerated to very, very high energies. In fact, the highest energy cosmic ray detected, it has the same momentum as a pitched baseball. So you can Imagine they are really energetic for a proton to have uh, real-world energies. But we don't understand the mechanism of these highest energy cosmic rays, where they are coming from. So it's an open field. But for today's discussion, it doesn't matter because we are mostly interested in much lower energies and the physics is uh, understood really well. So when people talk about ionizing radiation, ionizing radiation is something which can just pop out an electron out of anything. And the energy it needs is around 10 electron volts. So for hydrogen, you put 13.6 electron volts, it pops out an electron, that is ionization. Normal light that we see, this optical photons, the energy is around four electron volts, it is non-ionizing. 
So whenever we associate ionizing radiation, it is mostly with destructive effects. For example, when astronauts go in space, you don't have the protection of the atmosphere, geomagnetic field, and you are exposed to this increased flux of protons or cosmic rays, and which damage different tissues, cause DNA damage. A higher dose might also cause cancer. Also, in case of nuclear accidents, planned ones such as bombing, unplanned ones like Fukushima and so on, you have uh, incre increased exposure from a variety of secondary particles causing biological damage. So these are mostly harmful effects. But now let us look at some positive effects of this ionizing radiation. And the first one that I learned was in Fukushima after the disaster, people went there to survey, have a look what's going on. And they found some species of fungi that were thriving in that environment. Really, really high radiation dose, any other life form would probably die because of that. But this fungi, this was thriving. Similarly, in uh, Chernobyl and also in Fukushima, you have these nuclear reactors which are uh, which produce a lot of heat. And to cool it down, they use water as a coolant. And that water is contaminated by a lot of these fungal species. So that was really interesting that they are actually utilizing this ionizing radiation into their metabolism. And then people looked at their oncological use. They were trying to extract the DNA, what was responsible for this mechanism that it is using in its metabolism. Another thing with uh, ionizing radiation is uh, radiation resistance. Everyone knows about dinococcus that you expose it with very, very high radiation doses. Anything else, uh, every, everything is going to get destroyed except dinococcus. It can withstand this. So that got me thinking that if you can have certain kind of fungi that can uh, utilize this ionizing radiation, what about uh, any other life forms that can develop these kinds of mechanisms? And I was just digging through it and then I found this 2007 paper by the Princeton University group who went uh, about three kilometers deep inside a South African mine and they found this species of bacterium living independently, uh, no source of solar radiation. And the initial impression, because this study was published in 2007, when I was just starting graduate school and research, and uh, my impression was that its energy source is the heat coming out from these radioactive substances. And I think in astrobiology, people talk a lot about this heat from these sources. But when I read the second paper in detail, they did this analysis, different energetics, and what they found was the main source of energy for that organism was the secondary particles coming out of uranium, thorium, and potassium, which is in the rock. And it is utilizing it through a process which is called, it's not hydrolysis, I just forgot what it's called. Radiolysis, I'm sorry. So, re <laughs> so radiolysis is a process through which you have any kind of ionizing radiation, usually uh, nuclear material. And it inputs certain energy in the system, in the medium. So, for example, you have water and you expose it to ionizing radiation. It will cause electrons 
H positive, OH negative, a lot of these things which are biologically useful and then life can make use of it. So they uh, studied it in detail. They have all the numbers, how much flux is there, how much energy it is absorbing, and they have published it. And so the three types of particles which this uh, bacterium uses are alpha, beta, and gamma radiation. We know their energy. And out of these, alpha particle is the one which is actually harming this organism, not useful as a, as a source of energy. Because these alpha particles produce really thick ionizing tracks and they cause double strand damages, which are really difficult to repair. So single strand damages can be easily repaired, double strand, really difficult. So out of the three, beta and the gamma radiation are the ones that are really useful. And beta is just electrons, positrons, gamma rays are just high energy photons. So basically photons and electrons from this radioactive substance is powering this kind of life. And this got me thinking that, well, uh, uh, you also have a flux of galactic cosmic rays everywhere in the universe. And if you go in space, the flux is very, very high. Uh, but when you go deep underground, you still have a flux which is lower, but still it has a certain positive value. So I did a calculation that, okay, let us see. And I found numbers which were, some of them were made much higher than this energy that they have quoted, which will be closer to the surface of the earth. And it falls down sharply. So every kilometer you go down, this flux or this total energy that you see deposited by cosmic rays, it goes down by an order of magnitude. So you have this gradient. And it has been measured very well. There are a number of uh, high energy physics experiments that, that are looking for dark matter signatures. And they study this very well. They look at the radiation from this radioactive substances. They look at this radiation from cosmic rays. And they have to subtract it so that they can find something unusual for dark matter signature. And measurements are up till 10 kilometers deep. We know the flux of these particles, which are called muons. So let me just track back a little bit. So when these protons strike the atmosphere of the Earth, or let us say in case of Mars, the atmosphere is thin, they would strike the surface. And they produce a lot of secondary particles. So just like what you would expect in a collider experiment, you have proton-proton interactions, a lot of secondary particles. So a lot of secondary particles are produced. They can either decay or they can interact with something else in the atmosphere. So there is a chain reaction. So you have this huge cascade of particles coming down in form of a pancake. And most of them are stopped uh, at the ground level. But these muons, uh, they are like electrons, but 200 times more heavier. They can travel for several kilometers, depending on their energy. So some decay a few meters below the ground, some can travel several kilometers. And their flux is very well measured. Their physics of their interactions with matter is also very well measured, studied. So I put the two together and I figure out how much ionization is caused. Uh, how many electrons, positrons, gamma rays these are producing, what is the total flux, total energy deposited. And I found that the numbers are pretty similar to what this radioactive uh, uh, life 
three kilometers deep underground is using. So uh, it might be a, it can be a source potentially because uh, it is using the same stuff from radioactive substances. So it can use the same stuff from cosmic rays. That's the basic hypothesis. So if you have any questions, I'll be happy to answer. Hi, Dimitri. This is Sanjoy. How does ice work in terms of a shield? I'm wondering if these cosmic rays could be a source of energy for life in the European ocean. Right, right. So yeah, exactly. It can be. Ice also reacts the same way as any surface. I mean, most of the particles, neutrons, electrons, positrons, whatever, which are produced in the surface, they will get deposited on the surface of the ice. And below the surface, you'll have the same track of muons going underground. So they can definitely power life. But depending on how deep those oceans are, because with every kilometer, the magnitude uh, drops by a factor of 10. But that magnitude decrease depends on the Just density the thickness, of the material, thickness right? The, yeah, thickness of the, the density of it too, right? You yeah, think that exactly. if you have a lead planet, you won't be able... So is water... A shield? Yeah, water is certainly a shield, but uh, lead is certainly higher density, so it is a better shield. Okay. So, you know, we talk about life on Titan, which would be impossible because it's so cold, right? But mm. there is supposedly a liquid ocean underneath the surface, right, a couple right. kilometers down. And from the, the water pressure temperature diagram, it's a kind of sandwiched in between two ice layers. Right. right. So there's no reaction of rock that could give it some chemical substances. But perhaps muon energy could somehow. Right. Yeah, it can them. certainly produce ionization. And even uh, if you go much deeper, for example, on Earth, if you go, go below 15 kilometers, there is ionization by neutrinos. So neutrinos decay to other secondary particles and it's constant. It's very low, but it is there. So if uh, there is certain kind of, you can think about certain kind of life that can utilize this very, very slow rate of energy, very slow metabolism, I mean, it cannot be ruled out. So Dimitri, I wonder how does this increase the habitability of uh, rogue planets substantially? I mean, a rogue planet being a planet that's not bound to a star anymore. Um, right. I've heard about this, it's usually geothermal heating. Um, internal radiogenic heating that's the main energy source. So could cosmic rays make such a planet? Could we call it habitable? Is that too strong of a word even? <laughs> well, in terms of heat, this radiation doesn't provide much heat to the system. So you need heat from some other source like radioactive heat. But the good thing about this energy source is it is everywhere. You don't even need a star for this. So you have a rogue planet somewhere hanging out in some corner. And there is a flux of cosmic rays and neons are going to penetrate, ionize deep there. So it needs, I mean, any kind of life, it needs uh, certain pockets where you have the right temperature, you have the nutrients, and then you have a source of energy. So for example, this life, it was found three kilometers deep underground. You can ask the same question, okay, if you go to your backyard, you dig two meters deep, there is some radioactivity, why don't you find it there? I mean, so it needs that kind of thing. On rogue planets, if you have some kind of heating, maybe it can use a combination of these two sources. You can have some particles from radioactivity, you can have some particles from cosmic rays, and 
they're together ionizing the medium and through radiolysis life is utilizing it it is possible very interesting to think about i mean i, I can i can see how maybe you would end up with pockets of habitability on such a planet um, and of course when we think about habitability in in astronomy in an astronomical context about what we can detect so this would be difficult to detect or are there any like how would you propose detecting this kind of mechanism in, in any way either within the solar system or around other star systems well i think it's really difficult because uh, this kind of life as you know is going to be very primitive any of the byproducts such as methane or something it is going to be in very very low quantities so if you understand the system really well and if you cannot account for any excess of such gas or such residue then it might be coming from this so the detection is hard but in future i mean if you can dig in europa or maybe in mars if you dig deep and maybe find some heat source somewhere where you have some liquid liquid kind of thing some water vapor then uh, i mean such kind of life might exist but as such with the kind of telescopes we have uh, i think it's really difficult to detect something like this but i mean this kind of life could exist on earth and uh, i mean uh, just a few years ago we didn't know anything about this 3 km deep life so maybe we might find it here itself and that might increase the possibility of finding it elsewhere so dimitra the closeness to a star is important right so how deep would you have to go in mercury for example to to still have orders of magnitude that you can compare to for existing life on earth well for most of this radiation which penetrates deep underground most of this is primarily coming from galactic cosmic rays so from the galaxy so you don't even need the star so the protons that are produced from the sun they are mostly mev in energy and they are stopped within the earth's atmosphere you might have some giant coronal mass ejections or flares which can produce gv protons 10 gv 20 gv and so on which do produce muons but they go down to a few meters so that was another application of this theory that if it turns out to be true then in case of the young sun scenario the sun was highly active and the frequency of these coronal mass ejections was very very high so it can produce these multi gv protons that can penetrate uh, several meters underground and so for shallow waters you have nutrients you have water you have everything and you have this uh, ionization which is not directly damaging you but through radiolysis you are utilizing it so you are away from harmful uv and stuff so uh, potentials of i mean the way we understand the origin of life that miller ure experiment that you have lightning uh, which is powering uh, this kind of thing it could be cosmic rays underground since you bring up uh, origin of life i know you're an astronomer and you know there probably will have a better origin of life question than mine uh, after this if there's organisms on earth that are powered by cosmic rays exclusively you know i'm also not a biologist so it just makes me wonder you know the the common ancestor on earth 
was it originally powered by, you know, what was that original power source? Did this organism lose the ability to get energy from photons? Or, you know, is there a, is it worth thinking about maybe cosmic rays were the power source for the first earliest forms of life or a power source and everything else lost that ability? It's sort of which one came first? Have you had any, found any research or thought at all about that? Uh, I don't think there is any research on this, but uh, most reasonable assumption is that just the building blocks of organic material that you find from Miller and Yui experiment, they can very well be produced by cosmic rays. But we don't know anything about, you know, any organism that might exist that is certainly not known. Yeah. So I actually had a question about complex life. Not the origin of life, <laughs> because uh, I mean, you've been implying that only primitive life forms could uh, persist on these kind of uh, energy conditions. So these kind of biospheres would preclude complex life from evolving on them. So I have like a couple different questions. I'm just kind of curious about what this kind of scenario says about the likelihood of complex versus simple biospheres in the universe. The first question, I guess, would be um, if you thought that this kind of biosphere evolved first, if it would preclude things evolving that might use better energy sources that were more powerful and might lead to the evolution of complex life. And the other is if it really is the case that you would never get complex life on these planets. Well, we don't know the answer to this. <laughs> I think the approach here is that because what I wanted to do was to have not just a hypothesis just based on theory, but to have uh, experimental facts. So this kind of life that they have found in South African mine, that is a fact. And the flux of cosmic rays, this ionization, everything, this is also a fact. So just combining the two, you can have this primitive life form which exists. So it could also exist potentially. But when you think about more complex organisms, uh, we don't have anything like more complex than that, which is powered purely by radiation. It is certainly possible that it can use just this ionizing radiation for its metabolism. Now, the problem is uh, the, the amount of energy, total energy that you're getting is much lower than what you get from photons. That is one downside. So eventually, even though on the surface, in the beginning, you have very high flux of particles which are directly bombarding you, uh, flux of UV which can directly damage uh, simple life forms. So when you are shielded by water, you can have, uh, it can grow, it can nurture, and maybe then later it used photons because it's a better use of uh, energy. So that might be the case. I have one you know, very speculative, study-related question, which I have to ask, because we're, you know, we're all interested in intelligent life ultimately. I don't know, could this be a viable, additional power source for an extraterrestrial intelligent civilization? I mean, in addition to collecting solar power, I mean, I could imagine a staggered grid of, of solar collectors where the top layer collects photons and then the bottom layer is, is you know, collecting this much lower galactic ray cosmic, you know, this galactic ray flux as an additional energy source. I mean, you know, taking like the Dyson sphere, Dyson form idea, but maybe we want more than just the energy coming from the sun. Um, I mean, this is speculative. I don't really expect you to tell me the answer to this, but, you know, just see if any yeah, thoughts but, about... But the overall energy, yeah. I think, is much, much lower than what you get from the sun. Uh, 
underground it becomes interesting because there is no energy from the sun so it becomes one of the major sources we have uh, radiation from radioactivity radiation from these galactic cosmically induced neons but when when you are above the surface then definitely you have the sun unless you are on a rock planet then you have primarily cosmic rays which you can capture somehow, somehow using magnetic fields and then uh, get their energy somehow or perhaps if you're too far away from your star and you need an additional you need to live underground in order yeah. to uh, have habitable conditions so exactly so this bill nye has a solar sail which is powered by cosmic rays it went dead and then it became alive because uh, cosmic rays did something in the circuit i mean <laughs> and then you had this mission to pluto which used plutonium as the energy source so it is using cosmic rays and uh, radioactive substance very cool well are there any final questions for dimitra from anyone hi dimitra congratulations on the paper i really enjoyed reading the your original draft and and having discussions with you as part of my you know ongoing um, apprenticeship in astrobiology and space medicine i'm far behind but i'm trying desperately to keep up i'm reminded a little bit about a national geographic episode that i i saw quite a number of years ago when they first discovered the sulfur based life forms in the underwater vents in the ocean and i i was really struck that it's it's remarkable that they're not carbon based they're sulfur based and they've adapted themselves to a particular environment so it makes me wonder if these kinds of probably primitive life forms underground that can utilize this kind of low level radiation to actually be living organisms it seems to me that they 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 may would be restricted to that environment unless there was a possibility of higher level evolution but only in an atmosphere that uh, or or an additional environmental condition above ground that was more conducive to higher order complex organisms if you want to even talk about intelligent life I wonder what your thoughts are on that i think the kind of i mean life is just like any other system it's a physical system which utilizes nutrients whatever energy sources it has and it really depends on the environment and you're right that something that glows that grows in such conditions for example uh, this south african mine thing if you expose it to oxygen it will die so mm-hmm. it has to be a gradual movement so that it can evolve in such a way that it can utilize it i mean if same way we have evolved right from we were all marine based life and then slowly we became terrestrial but if you throw us in water i mean we'll uh, probably not live so mm-hmm. it has to be a flow process and you're right i mean it has uh, i mean all these type of things they have a niche where they can grow like human beings or any other thing all right well this has been a very fascinating conversation now well thank you once again dimitri for joining us really interesting hypothesis i hope we get to hear more about it i hope it gets a warm reception from the community because it's certainly an interesting aspect to think about in astrobiology listeners thanks for joining us this has been blue psycon uh you can listen to past episodes at bmsis.org/podcast if you're listening please send us an email at podcast@bmsis.org we want to hear from you send us your least favorite beverage Uh, until next month, we will uh, see you again. Thanks. Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science. 
And with it, we can improve our lives.